Good morning. My name is Corey Inouye, and my family and I serve on the Connections team here, and I participate in the men's Bible study group. I invite you to join me as I read from Mark 8:34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thanks, Corey. What does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his or her soul? That's the question that we'll be focusing on today in this series that we're, we're going through called Questions Jesus Asked. And the, the context of this comes directly after a different question that Jesus asked, one that is vitally important. In fact, we might say it's the most important question. Jesus is with his disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And then he turned it to the disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? It is the most important question, one that every single person will need to give an answer for, one that we probably thought was gonna be part of this series because it's the most important question Jesus asked. And while it's not the focus of our time today, it should be floating around in the back of our head as this is what Jesus just talked about before getting to this passage. He said, who do you say that I am? And, and one of his followers, Peter, said, you are the Christ. You are the one who's going to make everything right. And then following from that, he, Jesus began to teach them what that means. What does it mean that he's the Christ? How is it that he's going to make everything right? He's giving them more of an answer to that question, who is Jesus? And we see this start in Mark, uh, just a little bit before our passage, in Mark 8, verse 31. It says, and he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus' most used name for himself, he began to teach them that I, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, are there any more drastic high highs and low lows than what Peter goes through in this section? As we read through the gospel of Mark to get to this point, we see repeatedly over and over again, people don't understand who Jesus is. They don't get the full significance of it. Before Peter's confession in this passage, there was only one other time, one other person who correctly identified who Jesus is. And that was Mark, the guy writing the book. And he starts off by saying, this is the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then no one understands him after that. They keep getting it wrong. And so finally, when we get to chapter eight, we have Peter here saying, you are the Christ. We should be celebrating. Yes, finally, someone understands him. And so Jesus starts to teach more of what that means. What does it mean that I'm the Christ? How am I going to make things right? Well, I'm going to go and be rejected by other people and die and rise again. And Peter pulls him to the side. He's like, whoa, you can't say that. You're wrong on this. And we say, no, he didn't get it. He's still not understanding who Jesus is. It's in that time that Jesus looks to Peter. He says, you are wrong. 
you are not understanding it. You don't fully see who I am and what it is that I'm about to do. You are setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. So get behind me. Get in this position of one learning from their teacher. Get in this position of following after Jesus. See, Peter had clear expectations about what the Christ, this one to make all things right, what the Christ was going to do. The Old Testament talks about uh, this militant figure. So he sees Rome oppressing the Jewish people. And he says, well, this, this Christ is going to come and kick out Rome. He sees the Christ as this incredible king. And, and he sees Israel struggling. They're not what they used to be. So th- this Christ is going to come and make Israel great again. This Christ is going to have so much responsibility and power that it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And, and that sounds like a lot for one person. So he might need some help, maybe like a right-hand man, someone to, to get some responsibility, be in a position of power some young upstarts, maybe a former fisherman, been with them ever since the beginning. Peter has very clear expectations about what the Christ is going to do. And when Jesus says, uh, in response to hearing the right answer, showing them what the Christ is going to do, it, it makes no sense for Peter. He doesn't have a category for a Christ who dies. He's supposed to do the killing, not be killed. He's supposed to have power, not have power taken away from him. And yet in coming and correcting Jesus in this time, he's changing out what is God's plan and will for something that he thinks is better. And that is crucial to understand. Peter is swapping out what, uh, what God's plan and will is for something that he, Peter, thinks is better. So that adds another thing to be floating around the back of our head. As we get to this passage is, who is Jesus? It's all coming from that question that, that spawns this whole teaching that, that comes from it. And then in the immediate context, this idea, not having our mind on the things of man, but instead the things of God. And it's from that that Jesus gives this teaching of what does it look like to follow after him? What does it look like to truly know who Jesus is? What does it look like to have your mind on the things of God and not on the things of man? What does it look like to follow in response to understanding who Jesus is? And that's what we get in this passage that was just read for us. And Jesus gives this teaching through what I'm calling three lets and four fours. So three lets, these are these three commands that Jesus gives. What does it look like to live in response to him? And then these four fours, these four reasons why this way that Jesus has for us is best. But we start with those three lets, these commands that Jesus gives. And and he starts by saying, if anyone is to come after me, if anyone is to be my follower, Let him deny himself. So deny yourself is the command that Jesus gives as to what it looks like. So how do we show that we truly understand who Jesus is? How how do we uh, put our mind on the things of God and not on the things of man? How do we follow after Jesus? Well, that starts by denying ourselves. And what this means, it's not, denying ourselves is not just we're walking in, we, we just completely ignore the donuts over there. Like, I'm not going to partake in the sugary goodness of, of these donuts as a way to deny myself. Or probably to be more accurate for some of us in here, uh, denying ourselves is not uh, skipping past having a third donut on our way in. Like, that's not what Jesus talked about. Or giving up chocolate for Lent or whatever the small pleasures of life are. It's not saying, no, I'm denying these things as I'm following after Jesus. It's more than that. It's by saying I'm following after Jesus, so that means I'm not following myself. It's saying that Jesus is the one who is rightfully ruling over my life. It's not, it's not myself, it, that I'm not the one who's in control. It, it's not looking at the little things of life, ignoring the little pleasures of life, but it's the bigger question of who rules my life. 
So often the way we make decisions or evaluate things or, or come up with a plan for our life is by answering a series of questions. And it's how will this impact me? What is it that I want? How is this gonna make me feel? What will make me happiest? What, what is it that's best for me? We ask these questions, they all point to the idea of who we think is in control control of our lives. It's all me or I that is the root of all of these things. How is it going to impact me? And yet all of this teaching comes from this initial question, who is Jesus? And as we see clearly, more clearly, the answer to that question, the understanding of who Jesus is, well, there's no place for me to be on the throne of my life. There's no place for me to think that I have any sort of control or ability to, to make things work in the way that, that, I, that I want them to. There's no category for me, being myself, being the ruler of my life because I see who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, that he is the one with all power and authority. He is the one with all goodness and control. He is the one who has made a way for salvation and, and being known by him and lavishly loving us. And so as we understand who Jesus is, there is no place for me saying, yeah, but I'm in control. Control. Yeah, but I, 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 I can make this work. Yeah, but, but I know actually what's best. So this picture of denying ourselves is, is realizing who truly is in control. As we follow after Jesus, it means I'm not following after myself. And that changes the type of questions that we ask. It, it goes from all these me and I questions to what's in God's will? What is it that he says is, is right and best? How do I best exalt God in my life and in the lives of others? It's this radical change that happens when we recognize that we are not following after ourselves, but we're following after Jesus. And the first step to doing that is we deny ourselves. The second command that he has, he says to take up your cross. Jesus says, for those who are following after me, let him take up his cross. Now, we need to remember the timing of Jesus' teaching here. Now, when we, when we think about uh, Jesus uh, in this passage, he just said he's going to go and die and be raised again. And we, as people who might know the end of the story, uh, probably know that Jesus does die on a cross. It's why there's a massive cross behind me right now. But so often as we think about the idea of the cross, it's through that lens of Jesus died on one. And so it's a picture for us of that's, that's our basis for salvation. It's a picture of God's goodness and mercy. And those are good things. We should have that. But we might miss what Jesus, the, the scandal of what Jesus is saying here when we have a softened idea of the cross. And I, I think we might have one. The cross is something that we wear to identify ourselves as a Christian. We throw it on this building to identify this place as a church. It even shows up in our vocabulary, kind of going along this passage, but, but less so with what Jesus is meaning here. You might hear someone say, oh, that's, that's my cross to bear. The idea is that there's some struggle, some difficulty in my life, but you know, I just need to endure through it. I just need to make my way through it. That's, that's my cross to bear. It's kind of like, that's my lot in life. And so we might say that a certain sin that we struggle with, oh, that's my cross to bear. You know, my relationship with my in-laws, that's my cross to bear. Or, or um, I, I have a soccer team that seems like they really don't like success. And so uh, just the reminder that sticking with them, oh, that's my cross to bear. And they give me continual reminders of, of the endurance needed to be a fan, even as recent as yesterday when they lost yet again. Uh, but the idea of having that be our understanding of the cross misses the scandal of what Jesus is doing here. 
The cross was the horrific instrument of execution reserved for the worst of criminals. So, so we can't view it without the lens of Jesus, but just think before, as he says this, before he goes and dies on a cross, how the original audience would have heard this. To be associated with me, to follow after me, you need to take up your cross. You need to be identified with a horrific instrument of death that only the worst of criminals will, would ever experience. That's what it's like to follow me. And he says this, as some of those people who are there with him, they do take up their cross. They are killed for following Jesus. And it's pointing to this idea of what do you value most? In following after me, are you willing to go to your, your death in this horrific, brutal, shameful way? Some of his followers did that. Now, for many of us, we won't need to do something similar. For one, uh, Christians don't tend to be killed in America, and we're so grateful for that. And, and two, I don't see the cross as an instrument of death uh, coming back in a big way in modern culture. Right? So uh, the, the risk of being put to death on a cross is probably really minimal for us, and we should rejoice at that fact. But it still points to that same truth. What is it that we value? Are we willing to be treated shamefully? to give up something in our life, to, to have something taken away from us, all in the pursuit of following Jesus? Do we value him over even our life, what we have in our life, what we would say is most important? Do we instead say, no, Jesus is that most important? So I'm gonna take up my cross, knowing that I risk losing everything, but understanding that in following him, I have something greater. And the third command that he gives, the third let that is had. So anyone who wants to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. And he says, the final one is to follow him. And I know that sounds a little bit weird as a sentence construction. If anyone would come after me, so if anyone wants to follow me, uh, you must follow me. But it's this idea that to be a follower of Jesus, you actually have to be following Jesus. That there's not a category for someone being a Christian in name only. This idea of being a Christian does not merely define someone's voting habits. To, to be a Christian doesn't give a picture of someone's geographical location on a Sunday morning only. The idea to, to follow Jesus, to, to be one of his followers, to go after him is to use all of our life, all that we have in pursuit of who he is, to follow this direction that, that he's given to us. It means nothing is held back from him. But all that we have, all of our life, is used in a way that's done in response to him. As he shows us this way for us, that's for our good and for his glory. So we pursue that over and above anything else. But it gets to that question, why? Why is it that Jesus says this is better? Why is it that he gives this as the picture of what life ought to look like? It's so counterintuitive to us. It's, it's something that's not instinctual to us. It's so much of life, if we were left to our own devices, would be, how do I make things comfortable or safe or secure? But this is Jesus saying, leave all that and follow after me. Why is Jesus saying this way is better? Well, this is where I'm grateful for these four fours that he gives. These four reasons that all start with the word for. Why is this better? And he goes, for reason number one, for reason number two, for reason number three, for reason number four. And he gives them all to us. I, it's such an incredible picture of, of Jesus' mercy. He could have just said, because I said so. I mean, how often do we just revert to that as a reason? And he's the one who has all authority and power. So he, if anyone's gonna say, because I said so, Jesus can do it. But in a picture of his continual mercy to us, he gives reasons as to why he says this is the way that's for our best and for his glory. And this all starts 
with uh, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 35. It says, for, so there, there's where the for comes from, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus says, this way that I have for you is, is for your good and for your glory. It's the best way for you to live. It's in following after me. And the reason for that is, is if you are trying to save your life, if that's your focus, well, you'll lose it. But whoever loses life, surrenders all and following after me, well, you will save it. The, the, the idea is, what is our primary motivation in life? What is it that drives us? What, what is it that influences how we live, how, the choices that we make? Is it in pursuit of safety, avoiding danger, or glory, or comfort, or, or acceptance? Now, all in an effort to ensure, prolong, to, to, to make better our lives now. Well, Jesus says, if that is our focus, if, if our focus is just how do we make our lives better now, if that's all that we are focused on, then we will lose it. And, but not just what we have we'll lose something of greater value. And that gets to the second four, which is our question that we're focusing on today. And it's uh, from verse 36. It says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to get all that life can give, to, to receive all the pleasures of this earth, all that life can give to him. What, is it, what does it profit someone? What good is it for someone to have all of that but forfeit your soul? That what is most valuable about you. The, the idea is that you are more than just what you can touch, taste, see, and feel. But if our focus is just on those things, just what we can physically gain, just what we can add to our life now, which shows us that we have a lesser understanding of ourselves than what, truly, than what is true. You are more than your body. You are more than what you can physically accrue in this life now. You are more than that. I know this sounds a bit mystical and ethereal, uh, talking about it in, in this way, but the Bible repeatedly speaks of the truth that human beings have souls. And, and so what, this question is, what is a soul? This is what it is that makes you, you. This is who you truly are. The God-breathed part about you that makes you, you. So that, what that means is no matter what your circumstances of your life are, no matter what happens to your body, you don't lose out on being yourself. You don't lose a part of you. You are still you. Your soul is still intact in that time. This is who you are. And so the question that Jesus asked here is, are we so preoccupied with what we can physically get in this world in preserving or adding to our life now that we miss out on what is truly valuable, that we miss out on what is truly you? And I think we see this play out a bit in our culture now, that there's so much of an emphasis, especially lately, on this idea of self-care, and so when things are go really difficult, we're, we're overwhelmed, we, we don't know what to do, it, it just feels like all of life just, just is getting out of control. We, we bunker down and we focus on self-care. Or, or in those times that things are going really well, we, we got a little bit of extra money, let's, let's splurge on, on self-care. And yet, so often when we think of self-care, it is in these physical things that we, we add on to our life. It is partaking in these physical things that Jesus talks about could do damage to our soul. 
Elsewhere, it, it was connected to one of the questions we, we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus makes this point uh, of, uh, isn't the life, isn't your life more than food and drink? Isn't the body more than clothes? It's this idea that Jesus is teaching to show us the value that is in our persons. And yet so often we respond to the difficulties of our persons with those very things. Food, drink, clothes. And yet in doing so, we miss that internal problem. We miss that greater problem as we pursue these physical answers to difficulty or ways to celebrate, ways to indulge. This could look like a variety of different things for different people. Maybe it's, you know, Netflix in a bubble bath with a glass of wine. Or we we partake in some hobby that that we find a lot of joy in. Or it's, um, we, we just need to get away from our regular routine of life. Or get away from other people just to be by myself. Or it's shopping, buying new clothes, or some new device, gadget, or toy. Or, or it's the opportunity to just indulge in really rich and expensive foods. And all these things, it's turning to these, these physical pieces to add value. This is what we're turning to in these times. And I don't want to press this point too far. Um, on Tuesday mornings, I've been spending some time with some of the men of the church, and we've been working through heresy, some wrong belief that's been held uh, throughout the history of the church. And, and one of the ones that we worked on was this belief of Gnosticism. And uh, it could, maybe some of the men in here who were part of that Tuesday morning study are saying, you know, it sounds like you're getting pretty close to Gnosticism, which was this belief that, that all physical things were bad. And so the, the body had no value or, or dignity or worth amongst other weird things that we don't have time to get into right now. But that, that's the main thing. And, and so let me be very clear here. I'm not railing against things that are physical. I'm not saying our bodies are not important whatsoever. But what is our instinct? And when we are at, our, at the end of our rope, when things are going really well, what is it that we turn to? Is it these, these other things, these physical things that, that we think are, are gonna bring value and significance uh, to our lives? Is that our instinct? Well, that shows us what is our hope. That shows us that we are still learning how we answer that question, who is Jesus? We said earlier that denying ourselves is not talking about these little pleasures of our life. It's not skipping past the donut, but we run into problems if we say, you know, this donut, this is what's gonna make me happy. We never might be that bold to say it, but these things that we ingest, we turn to them for escape or to feel something. Or, or to give us some sort of worth. Or, or the purchases that we can make, we, we would never say, you know, this is my status, this is my identity, but sometimes we buy things just to reveal that. And if we're turning to these things, if, if this is what self-care looks like, then yeah, we might be doing damage to our soul in these times. Don't, don't hear me though as, as some pithy headline on a Christian mom blog that you don't need self-care, you need soul care. You need both. There is a place for feasting. There's a place for enjoying God's creation as he's given it to us. If, if you look at who's thrown the most parties, it's going to be God. Read through the Old Testament and you see time after time, God initiates celebrations, enjoyment, feasting, overindulging all in the worship of God. You look at how God created the world. He said it was good. He didn't say it's functional or utilitarian. He didn't say, yeah, this will do. No, he said, this is good. So as we enjoy in what life gives to us, it is a way to praise and worship God. The concern though, is that it can be a way to, to satisfy a rival God. 
which is ourselves, which is just feeding into what it is that we think we need best in our life. So what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's concerned for the whole person, body and soul. But he's speaking into the, the fact that it's so much easier for us to so focus on the body that we neglect the weightier thing. Do not fall for the trap that the little pleasures that we can experience in this life are all that there is. Or a sign that as we can get these small gains or, or small satisfactions that we can do so much more. We, we don't need anything else. We know the way that's best for us. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Then we get to the third four, the, this other reason that's given to us. Uh, Jesus asks, for what can one give in return for your soul? And, it, and it's a question that actually makes a statement. Nothing. There's nothing that we can give in return for our soul. That, that even as we focus on life, as, as we just amass all that we can right now, well, when we die, that, that all goes away. And so what can we then show as the fruit of our work? What can we show as, as the, the basis of us having, uh, maintaining our soul? Well, it's all gone. There's no footing that we have. There's nothing to stand on. There's nothing that we can trade in at that point because all that we invested in is gone. And then finally, the, the, the final four uh, that's given to us, it says, for whoever is ashamed of Jesus, Jesus will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and power. It's this idea that if we're turning away from Jesus, if we're not following after him, whether we're ashamed of him or, or we think that we have something better, like we look upon this as, yeah, that's nice and all, but, but that's not really gonna work out for me. If we're rejecting Jesus in this way, then, then we lose the only basis that we have for maintaining our soul. We lose the basis that we have for salvation. We use, lose any footing we have to stand before this holy and perfect Jesus. See, the idea that what Jesus is getting to here, following after him is deeply personal. Jesus invites us to follow after him. Jesus, it says he knows his followers' name and they know his name. Jesus invites people to find salvation in him. That is so personal and yet it's never private. Following after him impacts every single aspect of our life. It's not as though we have these different categories. This is my Jesus-y side of things, but, but this is my other side. No, there's nothing other than following after Jesus that impacts and influences everything that we have. It's one of the reasons why we do baptism in the way that we do. It's, it's up here, it's public, it's in front of the church because it's saying that I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I, I trust in him. He is my basis of salvation. I'm denying myself, taking up my cross and following after him. And I wanna announce that. I wanna reveal that to this church that I wanna be associated with Jesus. And that's how we do baptism. If, if you are, are someone who fits that category, you're following after Jesus, we have an opportunity to get baptized next month, the first Sunday of April. It's the Sunday after Easter, April 7th, I believe is what it is. Uh, we have an opportunity to, to, for you to be baptized. That, that as following after Jesus, it is a way to say that I have I found Jesus as my personal savior, but it's not something that's ever private. I do want to be cautious because it could be, the inverse could be heard here. That, that me saying that if there are people here who follow Jesus and you haven't been baptized, oh, well, you must be ashamed of Jesus. That's not at all what I'm saying. But in that time, I just asked the question, well, why? Why are you following after Jesus but, but have not been baptized? It's a way that we reveal how personal our saving has been. It's a way that we show that this is not something private. It's a way that we show I am following after Jesus who calls for us to be baptized in his name. 
But in this passage, though, this is a really difficult text, and it's difficult because the question that he asks is so counterintuitive to how we respond. So, so much of life just seems, we can trick ourselves into thinking, just seems to come from, from what I can do, what I say is right, what I think is best. But it says, whoever will save his life will lose it. That if we revert to what we think we can accomplish on our own, it, it just crumbles in our hands. The more we insist on knowing what is best, it takes us down the worst route for us. The, the more that we claim to know what is right reveals just how wrong we are. The more we insist upon it being our work shows how little we are actually able to do. And we see this show up time and time again. This isn't just some uh, hypothetical. We see this actually play out over and over again. You, you look at the people that we would say are the most successful, what, whatever metric you want to grab to say someone is successful. You look at those people so often, they look back on their life or, or in times of difficulty and they say, it's not enough. This didn't actually do it. This didn't make things better. You, you look at, at the people who, who are famous so often it's saying, you know, my life was not made easier by being famous. Famous. You look at the incredibly wealthy people, uh, they too are part of this same uh, race of just trying to get more and more and more. So often we can, we can think that, you know, if I just had X amount more, or if I just had this thing out of my life, if, if I just had uh, this opportunity given to me, then my life would be so much easier. And yet we look at the people who are wealthy and they say the same things. If I just had more, if I just had more and more and more, that's never enough. You look at people who are, are, are beautiful. Well, beauty fades. You look at people who are powerful. Well, there's still things outside of their control. You look at the most intelligent people. They find themselves frustrated by how much they still don't know. And yet we continue to insist that I can build my life. I can make it. I can do it. You know, this is how I'm going to make a mark on the world. This is how people are going to know me. This is how people will see that I am worthwhile, that I was here, that I made something of myself. And it just takes more and more and more. Our efforts never end. And, and we just end up in a place that's not where we thought we were going to go. We just end up looking back on our life and saying it was not enough. Alternatively, Jesus invites us to come to him. Come to me. You're looking for who are you? Well, I give you an unwavering identity. You're looking for value and significant and worth. Well, I give you that in my name. You're looking for who is it that you are? Well, well I'm showing you who you are. You're looking for being known? Well, I know you by name. You're looking for acceptance and love? Well, I love you and I've demonstrated that from my work that's done on your behalf. We, we try these routes and Jesus in his mercy shows us what, what these routes take us in despair and, and sadness. We, we could try them. But even before that, Jesus shows us his mercy and he shows us where they will go. Alternatively, come to me, follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me in a way that's for our good, that puts value into us, where we are known and loved by the God of the universe, the only one who truly can be on the throne. Come to me. And ultimately, we see in this passage why we can trust in Jesus. I mean, why we can trust that this way that he has for us truly is good. The, the commands that he gives in this passage, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's not just mere commands that are dumped on Jesus' followers. 
but it's actually a picture of what Jesus does on behalf of his followers as well. That Jesus denies what, what he uh, had uh, due to him by right. He goes to the cross to die and, and he shows to his models to us what following after him looks like. He does all this on on our behalf. So as we read this passage, uh, how is it that we don't forfeit our souls? How is it that we save our lives for our lives? Our souls have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Because as Jesus goes into the section of, of what does it look like to follow him? The ultimate reason why the best reason for that, the greatest picture as to why we follow Jesus over anything else is given to us right beforehand. Let me read again, Mark 8, 31. It says, and he, Jesus, began to teach them that he, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus, in his command, deny yourself Take up your cross, follow me. This way that I have is for your good. This way that I have will actually bring satisfaction in life. This this way that I have doesn't go down these routes of despair and sadness and you can trust in me because of what I've done for you. Deny yourself and look at how I'm pouring myself out for you. Take up your cross, look at how I'm dying this death for you. Follow me as I show you this way that is for your good and for my glory. And it's all coming from this understanding. This all spawns from this question of who is Jesus? Well, the most resounding answer to that question is he is the one who went and died. So we follow him in response to his love and mercies poured out on us. And we have an opportunity, the, the first Sunday of every month, we take communion together, which is a time that we pause and we reflect, we look at who Jesus is. We, we have an opportunity to, to pause and, and get a greater understanding and appreciation of that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Communion is something that goes back to right before Jesus went to the cross to die on our behalf. And he was with the disciples and he took the bread that was at the table and he was showing them, again, his mercy. He was showing them what it is that he was about to do. And he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. A picture of he's going to die this death that was ours by right. And yet Jesus does this on our behalf. Following that, he, he took the cup there. He was like, how do we trust in this promise? How do we know that it was enough? We took the cup that was there. He says, this is the new covenant. This is the promise that has been kept because the promise has been kept by my blood. And so he's showing us that the work that he has done, that he accomplishes, is our basis for salvation, is the reason we follow after him. The love that we have in, uh, is a love that's done in response to how lavishly he has loved us. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we'll have an opportunity to pause and reflect, to think afresh about who is Jesus. But it's also that reminder is that as we follow after him, we still stumble. We still go back to that instinct within us of thinking that I am the one who's on the throne of my life. I am the one who knows what's best. And so this is an opportunity for us to repent, to turn to Jesus, say, no, I want to follow after you. I, I've stumbled, I've fallen, I've messed up, but I want to follow after you. And then after you've, we have the chance to reflect on Jesus, to confess, our, our, to confess to him, I invite you to go to one of the three stations that we have. We have two in the front, one in the back. You can go there and you could start with, with the cracker, which represents Jesus' body given for you. You can take the cup, which, which has juice in it, which represents the, the cup that Jesus had, the, the new covenant by Jesus' blood. After you've had a chance to take both elements, I invite you to head back to your seat. After everyone's had a chance, we'll continue to worship as we worship through music. But before we do any of that, let me pray for us. We'll have a chance to pause and reflect, to respond to this Jesus in, in our prayers, 
and in taking communion together. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for how merciful you are in this teaching that we, like Peter, seek to understand you, but we, like Peter, still continue to have a smaller picture of you than we ought. That you showed your mercy to him and you continue to show mercy to us who don't get, uh, who don't grasp the fullness of who you are. We still revert back to the ideas of you that we think are best, the plans that we think are, are the ones that, that ought to be done. And yet in all things, we want to surrender to you. We want to deny ourselves, recognizing that you are the only one who has the right to rule, the ability to rule. We want to take up our cross, recognizing that there is nothing, nothing that we value more than you. And we want to follow after you to actually do what you say, to actually be associated with you in this personal but never private way. And in your mercy, you show us why this is best, but ultimately you show the greatest picture of mercy ever, that you go to the cross in our stead that you die this death that ought to have been ours, that we who turn away from you, we who think that we can be God of our own lives, you are the one who went and died on our behalf, that while we are still sinners, you died for us. So we live our lives not to earn anything, but in recognition that you have paid it all. We live our lives in response to the greatest picture of love that there is. So we follow you with all that we have. So it's you and you alone we pray. Amen.